Today I'll be preaching and uh, reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9, excuse me, 5 through 9. Hear now the word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he let nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise that everything is in subjection to the Lord's feet, to the Lord's reign, to the Lord's power and control, that everything that we encounter, everything good, everything difficult, and things that we do not even know about is under the control, the reign of Jesus Christ. Help us to have faith, That even though we do not see all of these things and all of the principalities and authorities in this world in subjection to him now, but that we would see Jesus and that by meditating and dwelling upon Jesus, that we would believe and come to understand that all things are in subject to him. Help us, Father, to have these eyes of faith as we hear your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This particular chapter I've broken up into three sections, and I I do hope to complete this chapter next Sunday. Maharus is betting on it that I won't, but I think I will. I'm hoping to. I've already got my outline set up. And I think I should be able to pull it off, but um, my goal is to try to do a chapter a month until we get to the end of the year. But last week, we see that, uh, if you want to break it up in the way that I have it here, that verses 1 through 4 has to do with the sent warning and message of salvation. So we have this message given to us by angels. We, as the writer is telling us to, how to prioritize the superiority of Christ, over the angels, is that the angels are serving Christ by being messengers of warning and salvation to us. And in that proclamation of God's superiority, we also have the solidarity of his superiority given to us. I'll break that down a little bit. Is that because these angels are serving him, we understand that the purposes of Christ and what he is doing on this earth is to bring forth the message of salvation to his people. So as he is lifted up and exalted in his superiority, 
we understand that everything that falls under him is ultimately for the purposes of drawing us to him. So we share that delight and inheritance of his superiority because his purposes are for our salvation. So verses 1 through 4 is the sent message of warning and salvation. Today we're going to be talking about subjection to humiliation and exaltation. We see that this one who is superior, his superiority is going to be shown as being this one who is lifted up has been brought down and subjected to humiliation so that he may be subjected to exaltation and that all things under him be brought subject to him. So sent message and then subjection to humiliation and exaltation for today's sermon. And then next week, just to give you a preview of that, that verses 10 through 18 has to do with the sharing and the suffering in sanctification of Jesus Christ. Again, if you wanted to look at the theme for all three of these, is that Christ's superiority and his solidarity for us. And it's a wonderful thing that as we see him exalted, all of these messages are, and this is for your sake, for us. Now, when we see that superiority in many ways, we see his superiority of righteousness and holiness, it brings us to a place of fear But because of what he has done in his humiliation, he has given us access to that superiority through repentance and faith. And therefore, we have the solidarity of his greatness being granted to us. I mean, that's a lot of big, big words there. But I think you can see the point because the very point of this whole message up to this point is to show the superiority of Christ. But the wonder of this, the, the beauty of this is that it is for our sake. And that message continues here. It says that the world was not subjected to angels. That this was that all of that you see in creation was not for the purposes of these glorious beings called angels. Again, this continual contrast between Christ and these angels. So who was this world subjected? And it says here it subjected the world to come. Now, this is interesting. You need to look at what's being said here, that the Hebrew writer here is saying that the world to come, and then he says, of which we are speaking. Now, if we flip back to the first chapter, to the first section of the first chapter, the first verse, it's talking about the age that has come. So what we're actually seeing here is that the the writer of the Hebrews is saying the world has been subjected to something greater than angels. It is the world to come. But it is the world that has come in Christ. And so there's this already in what Christ has accomplished, but also this not yet. But then interestingly enough, as he goes into verse 6, he's using as a proof text for this proclamation a passage that is about creation, about the world all the way back at creation being subjected to mankind and the Son of Man. So let's go into this. So what we see here, it says in verse 6, it says, has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, when we look at this contextually in Hebrews, we can see very quickly, it doesn't take very long, there's a commentary right after this that we know that this is about Jesus. 
There's no question about it. In fact, just as a little hint to you, this is in this particular point in the, in the letter, this is the first time that we actually hear the name Jesus proclaimed. There in verse 9, he is, he's mentioned many times as the Son of Man or the Son of God. We know that Jesus is all through already in the first chapter, but it's the first time that we see his name. So who is the world who is this subjection who is the world being who is the world being subjected to in Psalm 8 this reference that the Hebrew writer is is it about Jesus or is it about mankind well let's look at it if you turn into your bibles to Psalm 8 we always it's always good in all of these situations I don't know if you watched a little video that I sent out to you all on Monday that gives this overview of the book of Hebrews. And he even referenced in that also that when you're going through the book of Hebrews, you would do a a major disservice to your own study and self if you don't stop and look at all of these biblical references that the writer of Hebrews is doing and go through and look at it in broader context because it really opens up what's being said here. There's assumptions here. It's not as if it's not necessary that if he didn't go through and reference the whole chapter that we don't need to read the whole chapter, there's an assumption that you're going to bring in the context. And so it's important for us even now to bring in this context so we can understand what this little while but forevermore and also forever has been the call of creation. So in Psalm 8, We see this highlight of the majestic purpose of man, which we see in Hebrews is the majestic purpose of the Son of Man, capital S, of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Let's just stop there for a second. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So we know that in the very beginning verse here, that this praise and adoration that is being proclaimed in this psalm has to do with the Lord. It has to do with his name and authority. And the word majestic, what does majestic mean, folks? What what does the word majestic mean? What do you think of? Royalty. Royalty. It's because if you think about it, and I'm sure we've watched plenty of movies. I don't, has anybody ever been to London and has met the Queen over there? I guess not. you have. You met, <laughs> you know, or you've seen TV at least where people go up and they say Your Majesty, or you've seen different shows, and the Majesty has to do with royalty. There's something. It's a it's an authority, but also this sovereign reign rule. And so, in the very beginning here, we see that the Lord is majestic. That His name, and as I've proclaimed many times before, is that His name means His authority. That His name has weight. That His royal name is over all of the earth. Now, if you leave here today. The one thing I want you to have very secure in your mind, in your hearts, that God's reign is over all of the earth. All of the earth. Let's keep moving. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and avenger. 
Now, this is an amazing verse here. We can see that, what does this mean? Well, the, out of mouths of babies and infants, you have established. First of all, this is quoted by Jesus himself to the Pharisees when the Pharisees were upset after he was healing the lame and the weak. And then they were complaining about what he was doing. And then they said, listen to these. And it says these children were singing Hosanna to the son of David, which was proclaiming him to be the Messiah. And they were telling him, you need to tell these people to hush. And he's, he quoted this. He said, out of the mouth of babes and infants. Well, they proclaim this name. And it says here in this particular passage that this is the foundation. This word established is synonymous with the word foundation. So when we think about who Jesus is as he is reigning over his enemies, that the very theme foundation of Jesus Christ conquering is that babies, that the weakest in the community, the weakest in our society, the weakest of mankind, are going to be the ones who are going to bring the praise to God. That is how he is going to defeat his enemies is by bringing the weak and the lame, the little, and he's going to use babies as his number one weapon to destroy his enemies. Now, that's a pretty amazing weapon. When we think about that, this is foundational to the posture of Jesus against his enemies it should sober us to think how God gets things done. It sobers us with the children that I have and this little one with Jackson. I often think, you know, who's getting ministered to? Our family or Jackson? He is coming in and he's, the Lord has come in and he has had to destroy so many things in our hearts that we've been holding on to that were idols. He's using a baby. He uses babies in so many ways. Let us keep going. So when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Here we have the writer of the psalm saying, when I look at everything, when I look at the heavens, when I look at the moon, when I look at all the works of your fingers, and just, when I'm just in all of the magnitude of who you are, what are we? What are, how do we fit into this mix? Now, it is very clear from the posture of the writer of the psalm that he is talking about mankind. Now, we know that ultimately that it's talking about Jesus, but we don't need to just quickly fast forward to the reality of what the psalmist is doing here. He is comparing the human race to all the things that the Lord has created. And he says, Yet you have made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings, which are the angels. Again, we see this comparison of the angels. But you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this crowning of glory and honor is granted to mankind. Now, we know that ultimately, again, we're going back and forth here. 
Ultimately, we know because of the writer of the Hebrews, because of the book of the Hebrews, because of the word of God, that we know that it's ultimately Jesus' crown. But in this particular context, there is no argument that he is talking about mankind getting a crown of glory and honor. It says, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. The bookends of this song continues to highlight that it is the glory of the Lord, that it is his majesty, that it is his rule and reign. But here in the middle of that, we see that the the meat of this particular passage is talking about the granting of rule and authority to mankind. That we have been given this dominion. Because that's the whole highlighting point of this, is that mankind would be something that is mindful to the Lord, that he would actually have our, his mind set on us. And then this word, you care for him, means that you count to him, that, that he is considering it, that is a part of, of his accounting, that we fit into having tremendous worth to him, that we have value to him. This is a very comforting thing, but it's also a very perplexing thing But it should be a very foundational thing. Because what we see here is this overlapping very clearly as we come from Hebrews going back to the reference in Psalm 8. We see this overlapping of the superiority and reign of Christ being interwoven with our particular calling for dominion. We see that all of the earth, all of creation has been placed in our call for dominion. We see that one of the things of fruitfulness is babes and infants. We see that the weak are the the foundation of his ministry, that the work that Christ is about in our work is as he has created the world, the heavens and the moon and the stars, we are to take dominion of it because he is mindful enough to us to give us these things, that we're just temporarily right below the angels in our calling. And we're actually given a crown of glory and honor and dominion. Over all things, and he starts talking about animals and fish. So what does that remind us of? Where do we know that the, the psalmist, we know that the Hebrew writer is quoting the Psalms. What is the psalmist quoting? Moses. Moses. And what part of Moses' writing is he particularly quoting? Genesis 1. All the way to the very beginning. So when we see this proclamation of Christ's superiority, that he is using Psalms as the bridge to get us all the way back to the beginning, and we see that the the writer of the Hebrews is talking about the age to come, which we know has come in Christ, what we actually are seeing here is that the very purpose and point of what is going on in Christ has been laid out and established from the very beginning of time. Genesis 1. Turn to your Bibles there. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You cannot separate this particular passage in the Hebrews from the very creation mandate of the call of dominion for mankind. Now, this should have significant implications for us that we see that who Christ is and his superiority, that he is completing, that he is perfecting something that we were actually called to do. It also helps give definition and understanding of what our ultimate purposes have been from the very beginning. Now, I've really tried to chew on this and think about this, of how how we could get a grasp of what's going on here, because what the writer is trying to say to us is that when he says that all things are in subjection to him, he means... All things, every single thing that's created was for the purposes of the glorification of the superior king and ultimately to draw us to salvation. That when he created the earth and that he gave us this calling and when he created you and he put in you certain personalities and circumstances and contexts, is that it's all fitting under that reign of the call of the salvation of his people. It is not a compartmentalization of some kind of separate thing that God was creating the earth and he had this one idea and it's like, oh, shucks, things messed up. Now I've got to fix this and I'm going to bring my son in and I'm going to fix this mess that these people created. No, the whole show of everything that is going on has been for the purposes of this very thing highlighted in the book of Hebrews. I know that's some pretty heavy stuff. So I'm going to lighten it up just a little bit. Not too much, because I want you to fall asleep. So I have a question for you. What do you think the most interesting animal is in the world? Now, I'm not not skipping away from the, the, the word here that's talking about animals. It's obviously talking about all animals. So let's just take a moment. Let's chew on this for a minute. What do you think the most interesting animal in the world is? A blobfish? A blobfish. A platypus? Or an anglerfish. An anglerfish. Okay. All of of these fish. A platypus. Water related. Okay, good. All right. Others? Anybody else have any... any, uh, Surely y'all have some animals in mind that you're thinking of. The sloth. The sloth. Yes, I like the sloth. That's very interesting. Interesting that God gave us that, and that you know, and we think about our own sin in that respect. <laughs> Anything else? Humans. Humans. True. True. Yeah, humans are the greatest creation that we have, apart from the angels. We see that. We we, we got that. Stingrays. Sting all right. These are all good. Good. What's that? A slug. A worm. These are good. I know that Michelle loves dogs. And there's two things that she posts about on Facebook, theology and dogs. <laughs> That's right. Oh, you're a cat lover. I don't ever see any posts about cats. I see a lot of, a lot of dog posts. 
Yes, Elias. A horses. I think horses are great. I think horses and dogs are very unique when it comes to the relationships with mankind. They have some of the most unique. It seems like their whole purposes have been for serving mankind in very unique ways. But what we're seeing here in God's word is that all of these animals that you're talking about, they ultimately are serving the purpose for our salvation. Now, have you ever thought about that? You ever thought about how sloth, well, sloth is easy because it can, it can remind us of our laziness. So that, <laughs> that makes sense. Or a slut, <laughs> for that matter. There are a lot of things about animals that point out our characteristics of weaknesses, right? Now, I skipped over somebody's statement out there on, on purpose because it was, it was kind of getting to something I want to highlight. Uh, Joe mentioned water bears. Does anybody know what a water bear is? Yes. <laughs> now, it's not the same thing as a polar bear. Um, these are tardigrades. Has anybody heard of tardigrades before? If you've done some science work, you've heard about tardigrades. Um, and they were called water bears, or they are called water bears, or moss piglets. Now, I'm going to send you a link in my worship notes tomorrow about the tardigrades. They were discovered around 1773 by a German zoologist named Johann August Ephraim Goes. That's a pretty cool name. <laughs> but the name was given, the, the more cuddly name was given by a guy named Kleiner Wasserbar, who was, um, I guess he I guess he was German too. Maybe he was Italian. It looks like it looks like a German name, and it was called Little Water Bear, um, because and then a, oh, an Italian biologist named Lazzaro Spallazzani. That's a pretty cool name. He called them Tardigrada, which means slow steppers, and that's what they when you when you magnify these little water bears. These water bears, when they are born, they are size of a grass pollen. Okay, and then they they just double in size. So if you can imagine the size of a grass pollen, and then when they get adult size, they're twice that big. I don't know if you could notice the difference <laughs> between, the, between the two. So something that would be like dust getting twice as big. Um, that's what they are. They're that big. And when you zoom in on them, they look like these fluffy bears. And when they walk, they kind of walk like a bear. And that's what um, Mr... Spazzani thought when he saw them, they're slow steppers. They kind of move kind of funny. Now, they have eight legs, so they're definitely different looking, but they kind of look cuddly, kind of, other than they have this sucker thing right in the middle of their face that attaches to plants or other smaller versions of them, and then they suck them dry. <laughs> so apart from that, they look pretty cuddly because you look at that thing and you go, I can tell what that's designed for. God made that to suck on things. And so I started thinking about that. These tardigrades, they can, they're amazing. They can, they're probably the most hardy animal that we know about. They can withstand extremely cold temperatures all the way down to a negative 460 degrees. Has anybody dealt with negative 460? I, I know James has been out traveling in some pretty cold areas. He sends me some pretty cold pictures, but it's never been negative 460 degrees. You wouldn't be able to survive those temperatures. But the water bears, the moss piglets, they do. And then just the opposite, they can withstand extremely hot temperatures up to 300 degrees. Again, we can't withstand that. They can handle pressure 
which is six times greater than that that is found in the deepest oceans, they can withstand that. They can withstand ionizing radiation at doses a hundred times higher than what is the lethal dose for humans. And as far as we know, apart from the monkey and the dog, they're the only other animals that have been shot out into space. And they survived. Is that right? Am I wrong about that? Monkey, dog, and water bears. Any other animals made it out to space? And they survived. Other animals made it to space? What kind of other animals made it to space? <laughs> I don't know of any other animals. Rats? Maybe rats did go out into space. It could be spiders. I'm not sure. Well, they've survived. They survived going into space. And so these are amazing, and they can live up to 30 years, but typically they only live to be about three or four months old. Do you know what their number one purpose in the ecosystem is? Anybody know? Their food. They tempt other bigger animals to go into areas that they're not normally in, and their food. And that's typically those who live three to four months that's what they become. They become food. There's no, they, we haven't been able to discover anything scientifically of any reasons that they have other than food. And they do have this unique ability that they actually kind of lure animals out of their comfort zone into other areas, and it causes them to spread more throughout the earth. It's like it's God is actually wanting them to expand other animals into other areas and other regions. And they have the ability to hibernate. That's another component of them being bare. And you might think, well, Charles, you're spending a lot of time on this. The Bible points out to us that all things, including the tardigrades, the water bears, the moss piglets, are for the purposes of the glorification of Jesus Christ and the salvation of his people. That's what it's ultimately saying, because it's connecting this passage in Hebrews with the Psalms, which is connecting it to our creation mandate, and it keeps highlighting that all things have been subjected, and it's obviously that at the time of creation, that all things, all creeping things, it says very clearly here in Psalm 8, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, they found tardigrades in the seas. Genesis 1, over everything that moves on the earth, well, they're all over the place. That's one of the things that's very consistent. They're everywhere, these little water bears are. And it's saying that Christ reigns over this, and it's highlighting for us that all these things have ultimately been put into subjection to his feet, just like the angels have for the purposes of bringing about the salvation of his people. Now, you might think, How? <laughs> why is this important to us? If God has created everything in every circumstance for the purposes of our salvation, that means that everything that we see, that everything that we encounter, every circumstance, both good and bad, is either to bring us to praise, to repentance, or to assurance, or to comfort, or to hope of our salvation in Christ. Now, we see here in the book of Hebrews that there is a path to how this happened. We see that the path here is that now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing, again, including the moss piglets, 
outside of his control, that includes all of the difficult circumstances that you encountered this week. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I can't explain to you other than maybe the theory that these water bears purposes that God just likes the fruitfulness of it and he brings glory to him. Maybe even so that I could be using it as an analogy in our, in our sermon today. But I, I can't see all of the purposes of everything that's going on in what seems to be this little speck of dust animal that's all over the world. How that is in subjection to Christ for the purposes of our salvation. I can't see that. But what I can see in the proclamation of his word, it says that we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, again, using the same language from the Psalms, the same language from Genesis 1, because of the suffering of death. We see that as we look at Jesus, even though we don't have an explanation of how all of these things fit under the subjection of Christ, we do see Christ. We see him in his word, and these words are from people who saw him and saw the signs and the wonders that we saw in the previous section, that heard the messages from the apostles who saw Jesus live, teach, die, and raise again, and ascended into heaven, and even see him at the right hand of the Father. We have the testimony through his word that we can see Jesus, and we know that he is reigning, and we are being told here he is reigning over everything. Even though we cannot see it right now, He is reigning over everything. These are very hopeful words. These were very hopeful things that Stephen saw when he encountered the persecution and martyrdom of death. He saw Jesus reigning over all things. So it is imperative for us to look at Jesus and to interpret everything that we encounter in life as being in subjection to his reign, including when we are studying science or math or history or just studying our day and the things that we've encountered, that this is all for the purposes of the problem. Is he in there by himself? He's not in there by himself. Okay. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) That all things are in subjection to his reign. But that Jesus came down, and this is where we begin to understand how he operates, that because he is foundation of his approach of ministry is for the weak and the lame and for the sinners, he had to suffer death. That is the primary enemy. It's the primary enemy of the tardigrades. It is ultimately, is definitely the, the enemy of us because we see that because of what happened at creation, there was a fall. That there was an incomplete ability of Adam and Eve at fulfilling the call to the dominion of the earth because of sin. 
So Jesus comes and he suffers death to beat the enemy that thwarted the dominion at that time. But that we see here that even that the creation itself was still for the purposes of bringing about that rule and reign and salvation of his people. This means that nothing is, nothing is lost here for those who are his. Nothing is lost here for those who hold on to Jesus. Turn to your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to kind of speed things up just a, a little bit so we can finish here at a decent time, but we might just keep on going for a couple hours or a few days. You know, maybe we'll catch the Asbury bug and we'll just go for a few weeks here. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Hold on to that for a minute. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as by a man came death, by a man come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in order, his own own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. A couple of things I just want to highlight in here is like it's obvious that we see this is coming right back to the same point, And we actually see this a recounting of the creation story of Adam and his sin causing all to die, but that Christ is the first fruits of the dominion mandate that was given in creation. That he is the one who is going to be fruitful and multiply this kingdom that all things were created for. And that we see that if it is not for this very purpose, we can actually make a parallel reasoning here that if it's not about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then everything is in vain. Everything, including our faith, is in vain. My preaching is in vain. When we look at these, what seem to be insignificant components of his his creation, or when we look at challenges and trials and persecutions, and sufferings, and disciplines in our life, 
If we miss the fact that this is all about the glorification of the resurrected Christ, then we're missing the point and everything else is vain. Nothing is defined outside of that reality of the purposes of Christ's reign over <laughs> sin and death. Because that was the enemy toward the ultimate superiority of Christ on this world. And he has defeated it by going to the cross. So what does that mean for us? Well, one, we should go back to Genesis and think about what our purposes are. Our purposes are to take dominion. And we are to take dominion as men and women. We're to take dominion as men and women, assuming also that there is this calling of fruitfulness that is obviously going to include children. That doesn't mean that everyone has children. It doesn't mean everyone is going to get married. But just as we are told later on in Hebrews, it should be an honor to all to elevate the marriage bed and the fruit that is born from it. It is God's weapon. It is God's tool. It is God's mechanism in taking dominion over all of creation. It was the way that he brought about his son through a baby. So we should in every way, every way, not just like, well, we're talking about just the Christianization of this particular area. No, everything belongs to the subjection of Christ. So it doesn't matter when we stand up and we go through the abortion mill. We don't go, excuse me, are you a Christian? Well, if you're not a Christian, then go ahead. No, it doesn't matter because they're in the image of God. We don't know what God's going to do with it because we don't see everything in subjection to him. Now, he may be bringing judgment upon our land by allowing our children in our nation to die. But we don't see. All we see is Jesus. And we see the calling of Jesus. And therefore, everything should be defined that way. Whether it's your work, your thoughts, your time, your children, your profession, your businesses, your amusements. If you cannot see how they fall under the reign of Christ, then your purposes are in vain. You're wasting your time. You need to think about how are these things being subjected to Christ. And you may not understand all those things of how they're being subjected, but you could at least say, are they pleasing to the king, Jesus, and what he has called us to do? We know that we are going to fail. We know that Adam failed at it. I mean, from the, it would, that's one good reason to go back to, to Genesis. is like, well, we blew it from the very beginning. We're not going to be able to do this right. And that's the point, is that Jesus has come to be our salvation. John 8, 48, it says that, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and did, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? 
Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, out of the temple. The last verse of my passage today is that so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Because Jesus kept his father's word and he fulfilled this, that the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, fulfilled this calling and he accomplished the creation mandate and he became the first fruit himself, like a seed put into the ground and sprouting up into everlasting life, so that we too now, not that if we accomplish perfection, but that if we keep his word, the same word that Maharus mentioned earlier when Peter said, you have the words of life. This is the word of life, the proclamation of the gospel. This message given to us by angels is this gospel message to repent and to believe, to trust in this truth of the superiority of Christ over all things. We have tremendous reason to submit to his word in repentance and faith because nothing else matters apart from his glory and our salvation. Do you realize that he owns everything that you have? He owns Michelle's dogs and cats and for the purposes of bringing her and all of us and his people to salvation. He owns all of the moss piglets. (laughs) He owns every bone in Ben's body that was going to be reconstructed and the calling to us to pray for him and to anticipate what the Lord will do has something to do with Christ's glory in our salvation. It's not for any other purposes. It's not a side thing. It's all for the glory of Christ and our salvation. So as we come to this table, we need to realize the great king and superiority of what is going on here and then the solidarity of bringing us into this. Because he gave himself, he tasted death so that we would not have to taste death. But all we need to do is trust his word and remember him and take of him to eat and to drink our salvation. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. I hope I did not distract these people here today with the the details of a, of a little pollen dust animal that you created. We're just amazed, Father, that, that you made it, for one, but that, that it's for the purposes of the glory of Christ and our salvation. We don't see it. We don't understand it. We don't see, when we look at the world, we see murder and mayhem. It doesn't look like these things are in subjection to your son. But we do see your word. And in your word, you have shown us your son. He is the word. 
Jesus Christ. Father, focus our eyes and our hearts upon him. Help us to come to you into this table with repentance and faith, knowing that it is these words that have life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand.